Welcome to us weekly audio digest session of the National from Monday the 28th of January to Friday the 1st of February 2019. Read by volunteers at Care Review Prince Speaking to the Blind at our studios in the Fisher Bright Media Centre. The headlines in part one. Charities in war of words over Hen Harry are breeding sites. Labour unwittingly helping hard right agenda. Greens issue budget warning and threaten to withdraw support unless more local council cash is pledged. Harvey tells SNP ministers to stump up or face services crises. DUP MPs tell Scots to go to the chippy if there's no food. Theresa May's backstop fantasy brings no deal Brexit closer. Major win for SNP as May scraps a £655 million fee for EU nationals. 300,000 Scots are forced to turn to government welfare fund. Dumfries takes on investment company over high street ownership. The big questions. What would a no deal really mean? Scottish budget faces defeat as Greens refuse to budge. Former First Minister Alex Salmond arrested by police. Police issue travel warning ahead of Arctic blast. Rare whiskey is worth £10,000. Stolen from JL Gill whiskey shop. Councillors asked to back... £2 per night capital tourist tax. Hunt on for Ram Raiders who smashed shop. Scottish study brings hope stem cells can restore sight. India's essential part of answer to Scotland's economic inertia. Plans to bring back office and homes to Edinburgh's Princess Street. India's essential part of answer to Scotland's economic inertia. Failure to pass Scottish budget could create retail uncertainty. Street Valium linked to Scots drug overdose death increase. The National News, recorded on the 28th of January 2019. Charities in War of Words over Hen Harry are breeding sites, by journalist Martin Hannan. A war of words has broken out between two charities over the fate of rare bird species, the Hen Harrier. The Game and Wildlife Conservation Trust, GWCT, claims Scottish Government data shows the Royal Society for the Protection of Birds, RSPB, is four times less successful with Hen Harrier breeding than other land managers. It's dated, while half of hen harriers building nests on non-RSPB land bred successfully on RSPB reserves, it was down to 1 in 8. Yet despite the diverging success rates, the RSPB has persistently blamed other land managers for the species' decline. The Trust says field sports, in particular shooting and fishing, can contribute substantially to the conservation of landscape, habitat and wildlife, arguing that humane and targeted predator control is an essential part of effective game and wildlife conservation. Scotland has 252 hen harrier nests, compared to 7 in England, with nests on RSPB land accounting for 37 of the Scottish total. Just 5 of those 37 were successful in 2017, compared to 114 successful nests on non-RSPB land. Andrew Gilruff of the GWCT said, The RSPB receives substantial taxpayer funds to support hen harriers, yet where it matters, on RSPB reserves, the breeding successes of hen harriers is falling behind. I'm sure taxpayers would like an explanation. The increasing failure rate of hen harrier nests on RSPB reserves may be because there are a lot of foxes raiding the nests. The hard choice for the RSPB is between fatter foxes or more hen harriers. You can't have both. The RSPB has long maintained that the real culprits are those who kill hen harriers illegally. In a strongly worded reply, the RSPB's Director of Conservation, Martin Harper, said, 
This is another sadly predictable attempt to deflect attention from the real reason for the decline of the hen harrier, continuing illegal persecution. The sooner GWCT and others in the shooting industry stop turning a blind eye and help address these crimes, the sooner this magnificent bird can return to its breeding sites across the uplands of the UK. By journalist Martin Hannan. The National, Monday, January 28th, 2019. Opinion. Labour unwittingly helping hard right agenda. This article is by Carolyn Lickey. Yesterday it was revealed that the senior UK officials are now considering imposing a state of emergency and a martial law in the event of a no-deal Brexit. Whitehall is also examining legislation which could give ministers the powers to enforce curfews and travel bans, confiscate property and deploy the army according to Murdoch-owned Sunday Times which backed the Leave in 2016 referendum. One source told the paper, the overriding theme in all the no-deal planning is the civil disobedience and the fear it will lead to the death in the event of food and medical shortages. From the outset, one of my fears about Brexit was it could unleash a right-wing monster in times of deep crisis Sections of British establishment have never been averse to flirting with fascism. Hurrah for the black shirts ran the infamous Daily Mail headline of January the 15th, 1934. Its owner, Lord Rothermere, was a part of a sinister network of wealthy and influential people who covertly backed Oswald Mosley's British Union of Fascists. When Enoch Powell made his infamous River of Blood speech in 1968, he was not some obscure backbench MP, but the Shadow Secretary of State of Defence in the early 1970s. The Monday Club, which was founded to support apartheid South Africa and the White Rhodesia, and had links to the neo-Nazi National Front, could count among its membership six government ministers, 30 backbench MPs and 35 members of the House of Lords. The Monday Club is no longer the force it once was. It's no longer needed. The UK Tory party has now drifted into the far-right ideology and intolerance. These words are not mine, but those of Richard Ashworth, who until November 2013 led the British Conservative group in the European Parliament. Today, the extremist Little Englanders are not just exerting influence on the leadership, they are effectively running the show. I am... Never quite clear about Theresa May's political ideology or motives, but she now appears to be completely under the thumb of the hard right. These days, no one in the respectable political circles would dream of openly describing themselves as a racist. They use softer, more oblique language, but their political agenda is hardcore xenophobia. Arising from a mixture of arrogant superiority and cynical populism designed to drive deeper into labels traditional heartlands. Once upon a time, the Labour left would have faced this down, no holes barred, challenging and exposing myths and fictions at the core of the anti-immigration crusade of the right. But not now. Instead of Jeremy Corbyn and his trade union allies dressing up in capitulation to the Tory right and the language of the workers' rights and socialism, it is nothing of the sort. When Corbyn says the mass immigration from the European Union has been used to destroy the conditions of the British workers, he is unwittingly helping to perpetrate the deceitful 
propaganda of the far right. So too is Len McCluskey, who even said Karl Marx identified a long time ago immigration as a class question. However, Marx never supported harder borders as the answer to that question. Well, noting how mass immigration, for example, from Ireland into Britain was used to cut wages, his solution was to organise immigrants into trade unions and to build an international working class movement. So back to the present day and a few salient facts. First, more than two thirds of the EU migrants living in major cities and how did the UK's biggest cities vote in the EU referendum? London, Manchester, Liverpool, Cardiff, Belfast, Bristol, Edinburgh, Aberdeen all voted decisively to remain with Leeds and Birmingham split down the middle. Secondly, most EU migrants are young and so have sought work in the lowest paid sector of the, the economy. They are not competing for jobs of middle-aged white van men, the group that might expect to be in the same jobs market as the EU migrants are those aged 18 to 24. Yes, that's right. The age group which voted by 70% to remain in contrast to over 65 age group. Yes, the group which disproportionately benefit from the taxes paid by migrant workers that support pensions and the NHS voted 60% to leave. Yes, some of the poorest working class communities in the land feel left behind by the elites. And and as an opponent of the Brexit, I would like to hear a bit more robust criticism of the institutions of the EU from the Remain side, including the SNP. Let's be clear, migrants have become scapegoats for rampant poverty and inequality caused by the elites on both sides of the Brexit debate. The Tory and the new Labour politicians, the bankers and the financiers and the big business tycoons. Most of the Leave strongholds have now very few EU migrants. The North East of England only has 6% of the total and the North West 9%. Most of them in the remain strongholds of Liverpool and Manchester. The decline and neglect of the four mill towns and the mining villages won't be stopped by reducing migration and Labour in these areas should be shouting that from the rooftops. Finally, before ditching its principles, Labour left should be asking why Scotland has so spectacularly defied the anti-immigration pro-Brexit tide. Contrary to some superficial comment, that's not because the number of EU migrants are drastically lower. In fact, Scotland has significantly a higher proportion than the northwest of England and it has a similar class composition including more than its share of poverty and deprivation. Yet anti-immigration feeling is muted in Scotland compared to many other parts of the UK. Why? The answer lies in the political leadership. To their credit, Nicola Sturgeon and the SNP have refused to bend populist scaremongering over immigration. I am no uncritical cheerleader for the Scottish government, but on the issue it has displayed admirable courage and in these troubled and potentially dangerous times, courage is no mean quality. This article is by Carolyn Leckie. The Sunday National, Sunday the 27th of January 2019. Politics. Greens issue budget warning and threaten to withdraw support unless more local council cash is pledged. Harvey tells SNP ministers to stump up or face services crises. This article is by Nan Spirit. 
Crucial support for the Scottish Government's new budget will be withdrawn unless more funds are set aside for local council services, the Scottish Greens warned today. Negotiations between the SNP and the Greens, whose votes are needed to pass the budget, have stalled over the issue. Scottish Greens leader Patrick Harvey has now publicly denounced SNP ministers' stubbornness over their refusal to provide more money, which he says is necessary to prevent a crisis. He claimed Edinburgh was preparing to slash 300 jobs, Glasgow was considering closing all community facilities such as swimming pools and sports centres, Clackmannanshire was proposing a shorter school week and school closures, while Moray was getting ready to axe swimming pools, libraries and public toilets. He said there was also planned cuts to school support for pupils with additional support needs in Falkirk. A crisis could only be avoided through a fundamental change of position by the Scottish Government, Harvey warned. If the government continues to refuse to accept our proposals or even come up with fair alternatives, we cannot vote for this budget when it comes to Parliament on Thursday, he said. As councils prepare to set their budgets for the coming year, the threat to jobs, services like education and community facilities such as swimming pools and libraries is very real. Since taking office in 2007, the SNP has negotiated an agreement on four occasions with the Greens in order to pass the budget. Harvey said the Greens had entered this year's negotiations with a precondition of progress on local tax reform to make council budgets less dependent on the government in future. I'm convinced that a solid package of measures can be agreed, which over the coming years would empower Scotland's councils and finally end the unfair council tax, he said. But the government seems determined to force through a hugely damaging budget for 2019-2020, decimating local services around the country. That's not something we can support. He said that despite Westminster cuts, the Scottish government still had options to protect council budgets. The Greens have offered constructive and realistic proposals at every stage, but the government continues to refuse to accept our proposals or even come up with fair alternatives so we cannot vote for this budget when it comes to Parliament on Thursday, he said. Given the huge uncertainty being caused by SNP ministers' stubbornness, I've no doubt council workers and service users will be astonished that we're in this situation at such a late stage. It underlines the need to give real financial powers to the local level. So our frontline public services are not so reliant on the whims of central government. Harvey cast doubt on whether Finance Minister Derek Mackay would be able to reach agreement with any other party in order to pass the budget. He added, if he still wants green support, he knows that we will not accept the scale of cuts to local services that even his own SNP colleagues in councils around the country are telling him cannot be tolerated. Edinburgh City Council's Deputy Leader Cammy Day said the draft financial settlement from the Scottish Government was worse than expected and as a result the Council would have to make an unprecedented level of cuts to services. In Glasgow, Unison Brand Secretary Brian Smith argued that more could be done in the short term 
to hold off further cuts via borrowing powers through the refinancing of PFI slash PPP deals by the use of reserves and by using its tax raising powers more progressively. However, Clackmannan Chair and Dunblane SNP MSP Keith Brown pointed out that Scotland's public spending was severely constrained as a direct result of the savage austerity measures being pursued by the Tory UK government, with Scotland's resource block grant remaining almost £2 billion lower in real terms in 2019-20 than it was in 2010-11. Mackay has already warned that even if the budget is passed, he may have to revise it if there is a no-deal Brexit. He added, our spending plans for 2019-20 provide a real-terms funding increase for Scotland's essential public services, including additional funding of almost £730 million for our health and care services and more than £180 million to raise attainment in our schools. The budget also gives a vital boost to our economy through our £5 billion infrastructure investment programme. In the draft, published just before Christmas, the higher rate tax threshold was frozen at the 2018-19 level of £43,430, rather than increasing it closer to the UK level for 2019-20 of £50,000. This will generate additional resources, but means that Scottish taxpayers earning more than £27,000 will pay more tax than in the rest of the UK. Those earning under £27,000 will pay around £20 per year less than in the rest of the UK. This article is by Nan Spurrett. The National Wednesday the 30th of January 2019 Politics DUP MPs tell Scots to go to the chippy if there's no food by Angus Cochrane DUP MPs responded to the concerns about prospects at food shortages by joking that people in Scotland should go to the chippy according to Green co-leader Caroline Lucas The SNP's Westminster leader Ian Blackford warned the Commons about the country potentially running out of food in the event of a no-deal Brexit during a debate on Theresa May's Plan B Brexit deal. Lucas, who sits in the front of DUP MPs, said Blackford's comments on food shortages and price hikes for the public were met with jokes by members of the Northern Irish contingent, one of whom reportedly said, let them go to the chippy instead. Responding to SNP MP's speech, Lucas said, I'm grateful to him, Blackford, giving way because he's making a very powerful case about what no deal could really look like. Amongst that, he said there could be food shortages and crucially that food prices could go up. Does he share my anger in the way our constituencies would be affected by no deal? Blackford added, I'm sorry to hear that that was a remark that was made. This was a really important debate and I think there is a responsibility that we take these issues seriously. The National, Thursday the 31st of January 2019 Theresa May's backstop fantasy brings no-deal Brexit closer by Andrew Learmonth, journalist. Theresa May's attempt to scrap the backstop 
has made a hard Brexit more likely. The European Commission President Jean-Claude Juncker has warned. During his address to the European Parliament, the frustrated Juncker made clear that the withdrawal agreement will not be renegotiated, and that the deal already signed off by the Tory leader and the EU, which was rejected in Parliament earlier this month, is all that's on offer. On Tuesday night, MPs voted by 317 to 301 to give May a mandate to go on Brussels and ask for a change to that deal, specifically replacing the Northern Ireland backstop with alternate arrangements. The backstop, the safety net to guarantee that there is no hard border between Ireland and Northern Ireland in the event of no deal, by effectively keeping the UK in the customs union, has long been hated by Brexiteers. They dislike the permanence of the arrangement, which means that the UK cannot leave without the permission of the EU. May is heading to Brussels today to seek changes. She has promised to bring back a revised deal on February the 13th, with a debate and vote to be held on February 14th. During yesterday's Prime Minister's questions, a confident May told the Commons that the leaders of the European Union wanted a deal. What the House voted for was to leave the European Union with a deal, but it also crucially showed what it will take to seek support in the House for a deal in the future. Juncker told MAPs that British Brexiteers were hoping the EU would abandon the backstop and so Ireland at the last minute, but this, he insisted, would not happen. This is not a game, and neither it is a simple. The literal issue, it goes to the heart of what being a member of the EU means. Ireland's border is Europe's border, and it is our union's priority. He also said that while Brussels knows what the House of Commons is against, they still don't know what it's for. I will listen to her ideas, but I will also be extremely clear about the position of the EU. He said. Yesterday's vote has further increased the risk of disorderly exit of the UK. We have tried everything in our power to prepare for all scenarios, including the worst. Juncker told the European Parliament, "I'm still an optimist by nature and a believer in democratic institutions by conviction. This leads me to believe that there can and will be agreement with the UK, so that we can move on and move forward together with our new partnership." Addressing the Parliament in Dublin, Irish Tyrosik Leo Varadkar. Said he still didn't know what alternate arrangements were being proposed by the Tories. I don't know what those alternate arrangements are, the Tyrosic said. We've been down the track before, and I don't believe that such alternate arrangements exist. Brexit Secretary Stephen Barclay, during an interview on the BBC's Today programme, was asked repeatedly to give deals on the party's replacement for the backstop. Barclay said the UK was. Exploring in terms of the use of technology, looking at things like a time limit, no deal with the backstop. There are a number of options, he insisted. The prime minister pictured also met with Labour leader Jeremy Corbyn yesterday to discuss the possibility of cross-party support for the Brexit deal. A Labour spokesman said the 45-minute meeting between the two had been a serious exchange of views. This article is written by Andrew Learmont, journalist. This is an article from the National.
22nd of January 2019. Major win for SNP as May scraps a £655 million fee for EU nationals. Theresa May said that the UK government will leave for fee for EU nationals who apply for settled status so they can stay in the UK. Under previous plans, those living in the UK and who wish to stay were expected to pay £65, with under-16s being charged £32.50. Nicola Sturgeon last month promised her government would pick up the cost for the NHS staffs and other public sector workers who have come to live in Scotland and other parts of the European Union. Organisations such as the Three Million Group have also campaigned. Organisations such as the Three Million Group have also campaigned against the charge. Reacting to the latest development, First Minister treated she was glad to see the fee scrapped. Glad that the UK government has belatedly dropped a planned charge to EU citizens for fee for settled status applications, he said. But now the UK government has decided to abolish the fee. This is a major climb down from the Prime Minister desperately looking to attract attention from her continued failure to make progress achieving a deal, said SNP MP Stuart MacDonald. EU nationals should never have been asked to pay this fee, and it is welcome news that the UK government has finally listened. This does not change the fact that EU nationals should not be asked to apply for the status and rights they already have. And we now need to clarify whether an unrealistic decline for applications will also be scrapped. The entire process underlines exactly why Scotland needs the power to create a fair immigration system. The National News, recorded on the 30th of January 2019. 300,000 Scots are forced to turn to Government Welfare Fund by journalist Greg Russell. More than 300,000 households have needed emergency help to pay for essentials such as food and heating since the Scottish Government launched its welfare fund in 2014, new figures show. Social Security Secretary Shirley Ann Somerville said the numbers were a sad indictment of the UK Government's welfare cuts. Scotland's chief statistician released figures showing that 316,095 low-income households accessed Emergency funding between April 1st, 2014 and the end of September last year, more than £181 million has now been paid out from the fund, which helps people buy everyday essential items, such as food, nappies or toiletries, and cover heating costs or other living expenses at times of crisis. Grants are also given to people facing disaster or emergency situations, such as flooding, and to help families facing exponential pressure with one-off costs for items such as a washing machine or cooker. Somerville said the fact that nearly a third of a million Households in Scotland have required help from the Scottish Welfare Fund as a sad indictment of the UK government's record on welfare cuts. While it's obviously right that we should help those individuals and families to find themselves in dire financial straits, it is appalling that so many are in the position in the first place. The figure also highlights the very real consequence of the UK government's maladministration of the UK benefit system, delays and Errors and payments are forcing people to turn to the Scottish Welfare Fund to get them through immediate hardship. That is why we will provide local authorities with £33 million in the next financial year to support hard-pressed families who, through no fault of their own, need help to simply get by. By journalist Greg Russell. The Sunday National. 27th of January 2019. News. Dumfries takes on investment company over high street ownership. This article is unattributed. A community group in Dumfries 
plan to buy back its high street due to the number of vacant and abandoned shops has been forced to take emergency action after two of the buildings it hoped to purchase were put up for auction. The two properties which form part of the community-led Mid-Steepo Quarter Regeneration Project are owned by Columbia Threadneedle Investments and were put on the market last week without warning. According to the community group, the local community benefit society Mid-Steepo Quarter was granted money from the Scottish Land Fund to prepare plans and negotiate with the London-based Pension Fund and hope to complete the purchase this year. However, it has been forced to bring forward its plans. Now Mid-Steepo Quarter has launched a fundraiser to make £4,000 in less than 48 hours and is locked in meetings with potential partners who might support their bid. The community hope to revitalise the high street by gradually buying back abandoned buildings to use for local businesses and social enterprises, housing and university innovation hub. Chair of Mid-Steeple Quarter, Scott McKay, said we have decided to launch a fight back against this cycle of outside property speculation. We have the organisation in place to attract public investment to Dumfries that would see these buildings as part of a prosperous future. A future that we would see a part of our high street held in common ownership by local people. Mick Staples of Dumfries and Galloway Small Communities Housing Trust, which is backed by the community group, added, We estimate that the market value of these properties in their current condition is very low and achievable for the local community. We have support from agencies like Scottish Land Fund to help the community to make a competitive bid for these properties. In November, Mid-Steeple Quarter was granted ownership of the former Baker's Oven Building, also on the High Street, and work on the flats and shop spaces to start in 2020. A Columbia Fred Needle spokesperson said, We have tried to lease the property for a number of years, however, with large number of competing vacant properties on the High Street, and the absence of a retail demand, this has proved unsuccessful. The auction will hopefully result in a sale to a local investor or owner-occupier. This article is unattributed. The Sunday National Sunday the 27th of January 2019 Opinion The Big Questions What would a no-deal really mean? This article is by Kirsty Hughes, Director of the Scottish Centre on European Relations. Given the damage that a no-deal Brexit would do economically, socially and politically, is there really a chance that it will happen? With two months to go until Brexit Day, there are warnings aplenty as to what no-deal Brexit may mean. From Chancellor Philip Hammond's restrained but frank admission that a no-deal Brexit would cause short-term disruption and long-term reduction in the size of the economy, to the Airbus CEO appealing for MPs not to listen to the Brexiteers' madness, most, apart from the resmog band of Brexiteers, recognise the damage no-deal would do. Westminster could call for a people's vote, but there's no majority for that yet not least as Labour dithers. 
where MPs could agree to ask the EU to change the political declaration on the UK's future relationship with the EU, perhaps to emphasise a customs union and or a single market outcome. But for now, May will not agree to a customs union approach for fear it will split the Tory party. And there's no majority for anything else either, nor even yet agreement to hold indicative votes on options. UK politics is in an acute crisis and failing to an extraordinary degree. Calls from the Queen and the Archbishops of Canterbury and York for political reconciliation only underline the absence of serious political leadership. The deep divisions within and across parties and across the UK testify to a political system teetering on the brink. So a no-deal Brexit could yet happen. Businesses are implementing contingency plans and delaying, cancelling or moving investment. Brussels and the EU member states are making what plans they can. But even with contingency planning, it would be chaotic. Stock markets and sterling would plunge. There would be chaos at ports and airports. And that chaos would threaten transport, manufacturing, not least but not only the car industry, services, food and medicine supplies and more. A leaked internal government document reported in The Guardian confirms this, suggesting goods passing through Dover could be at 13% of current levels, medicine supply could be difficult after six weeks and police forces severely stretched in the face of likely protests. Theresa May has said the 3 million EU citizens living in the UK would have their rights protected in the face of a no deal. And a number of individual EU member states, including Germany and Italy, have said the same for UK citizens in those countries. But uncertainty will remain. And without the transition period to end December 2020, only EU citizens in the UK before March 29, 2019 would be covered. A no-deal Brexit would leave the UK's already Brexit-damaged international reputation in tatters. The UK would have left the EU while reneging on its financial commitments, with scant regard for creating a hard Irish border and with no concern for the impact on its European allies. The Irish Central Bank said on Friday that a no-deal Brexit would lead to food shortages, higher prices and a large fall in growth in Ireland. The UK risks being a very bad neighbour. Perhaps MPs will vote to request an extension to Article 50, but that needs unanimous EU agreement, and it only puts off the time when MPs have to decide what they're for, not only what they're against. Until now, it seemed the EU would refuse an extension unless the UK had a clear majority for a realistic route ahead. But as EU observers watch the UK's imposing politics, some, including one of Angela Merkel's key advisers, have suggested perhaps there could be a short extension. If so, it would solve little. Or, as the UK stares at the no-deal cliff edge, Parliament could unilaterally revoke Article 50. It's a sane option, but one Westminster looks unlikely to take. If a no-deal Brexit goes ahead, what will the political reaction in Scotland be? In the chaos of a no-deal Brexit, many may decide with hindsight that Nicola Sturgeon's ill-fated independence referendum call in March 2017 was wise after all. 
a no-deal Brexit would surely raise the temperature of the independence debate. And if a Section 30 order were asked for, but refused, both quite likely, would the Scottish Government head off on a path that until now it's not wanted to consider and call for an indicative referendum appealing to the Scottish public amidst the chaos of a no-deal Brexit UK? Any form of Brexit is damaging to the UK and to Scotland, but a no-deal Brexit would cause a deep political and economic crisis. This article is by Kirsty Hughes, Director of the Scottish Centre on European Relations. The National Politics records on the 30th of January 2019. Scottish budget faces defeat as Greens refuse to budge by journalist Andrew Learmonth. Derek Mackay's budget faces almost certain defeat in Holyrood tomorrow with the Scottish Greens making clear that they cannot back the government unless significant changes are made to local council funding. As the SNP don't have a majority in the Scottish Parliament, they need the support of at least two other MSPs to pass their spending plans for the next year. The Tories and Lib Dems have said they won't back the deal unless the SNP take independence off the table. That is unlikely. Labour have called the budget not fit for purpose. Mackay has pinned hopes on winning over the six Green MSPs. But talks have been faltering for weeks, with Mackay reluctant to back Green's plans for council finance. Tensions are running high, with the Scottish Government warning that the failure to back the budget could jeopardise funding for schools and hospitals. On Monday, the SNP MSP, Gillian Martin, even warned the Greens that they could bring the government down and risk Nicola Sturgeon's mandate for a second independence referendum. She tweeted, I get desire for more spend for councils. In an ideal world, we'd have the funds to do that and everything else. Pay offers for teachers, such increase in salaries for public sector workers, can be found if we need to increase spend. If budget fails, we might lose NDRF mandate too. Yesterday, Green Party co-convener Patrick Harvey said tomorrow's vote was purely on the budget and not a vote of confidence in Sturgeon's administration. There are both supporters and opponents of the SNP who seem to think it's about bringing down the government. It's not, he tweeted. If the budget falls, as it did in 2009, the government will simply have to reintroduce it and try again to reach an agreement with an opposition party. Harvey also blasted the other opposition parties for not putting forward positive ideas for change. I honestly think it's shameful that other parties haven't done so yet. Some of them demand the impossible, others demand the indefensible. Harvey continued, even councils led by the SNP's own party colleagues are making it clear that the brutal cuts they face will be deeply harmful, and we've been working hard for months now to prevent that. It's disappointing that we still don't have a fair compromise from the government, but if Derek Mackay is still willing to give ground, we are still focused on achieving what's needed for Scotland's local services, the people who deliver them and those who rely on them. Scottish Labour's finance spokesperson James Kelly said all opposition parties needed to send Derek Mackay back to the drawing board. Lib Dem MSP Alex Cole Hamilton suggested an early election could be on the cards. If their inability to get a budget through necessitates a new Scottish Parliament election, then I have every hope that people in Scotland will want to use that to reject the nationalists, he said. A Scottish Government spokesman said people would be astonished if they saw opposition parties playing political games that jeopardised funding for schools and hospitals. By journalist Andrew Learmonth. This is an article from The National, 24th of January 2019. Former First Minister Alex Salmond arrested by police. The 64-year-old has been arrested by Police Scotland. No further details of a charge has been released by the force. A Police Scotland spokeswoman said we can confirm that a 64-year-old man has been arrested and charged and a report will be sent to a procurator fiscal. 
Proceedings are now live under the contempt of court act. Salmon from Linlithgow, West Lothian, was the Scottish First Minister from 2007 to 2014. Salmon had been under investigation by Police Scotland following claims of sexual harassment against him. He strongly denies the allegations. Earlier this month, the former SNP leader won a political case against the Scottish Government over an investigation into harassment allegations by two women. The Scottish Government handling of the allegations against Salmond was ruled unlawful by Scottish Highest Civil Court. That's the end of part one. After the break, we'll be back with more great articles from The National. If you are blind or partially sighted, or know somebody who is... They may be eligible to receive a BWBF Sonata Plus internet radio, where our daily podcasts are available. To qualify for a free permanent loan from BWBF, you need to be resident in the UK, registered blind or partially sighted, over the age of 8, and in receipt of a means-tested benefit, or have a parent or guardian in receipt if you are under 18. If you think you qualify, you can find your local agent at www.blind.org.uk. And remember, when setting up the player... Ask for the Q and Review channels. Now, back to the main programme. Remember, this weekly digest programme is just a selection of what we produce. You can access more daily content online for free at qandreview.com forward slash free podcasts. For free daily podcasts of the Herald Scotland and Evening Times and weekly digests of the National and Inside Soap magazine. Alternatively, you can access all of these services via a BWBF Sonata Plus internet radio player. Now, back to the main programme. Visually impaired people are being invited to see if they are eligible for a free, specially adapted radio from a charity. The British Wireless for the Blind Fund, BWBF, provides the equipment to those with sight loss around the UK who meet its criteria. Radio is a lifeline to those who are blind and partially sighted, providing companionship and helping them to keep in touch with what's going on in the world, as well as in the local community. BWBF offers equipment free of charge to those who have sight loss and are in receipt of a means-tested benefit. BWBF is launching its Reaching Out campaign to try and increase awareness about their equipment and help more people who are blind and partially sighted. Our regional development manager, Sophie Weldon, said... Our radios are designed so that a person with sight loss can use them easily and independently. All equipment is delivered to the home by a volunteer who sets it all up and provides support in using it. We offer a range of equipment, digital radios, CD players, memory stick players, internet radio and even a specially designed app. Our radios are vital to someone who cannot see. They provide news, information and entertainment, but also more importantly companionship and a friendly service. If you or someone you know is interested in a BWBF radio, please contact Sophie Weldon at sophie at blind.org.uk. That is S-O-P-H-I-E at B-L-I-N-D.org.uk or phone 01283-790-208. That's 01283-790-208 or on 07540-724-063. That is 07540-724-063. To find out more about the British Wireless for the Blind Fund, follow us on Twitter at British Wireless, like us on Facebook, or go to blind.org.uk. Now, back to the main programme. 
Welcome back. The headlines in part two. Q and Review Print Speaking to the Blind are a charity based in Bishop Briggs. We're currently looking to recruit volunteer access to audio ambassadors in Eastern Bartonshire to place leaflets and business cards at businesses, shops and amenities in the area and to show the public how to listen to daily and weekly online articles from the Herald Scotland, Evening Times, The National and Inside Soap magazine for free. If you would like to volunteer and become an access to audio ambassador, please contact Michael Rankin on 0141 772 3976 or email aaatl at qandreview.com. That's aaatl at qandreview.com. In addition, we are also recruiting for volunteer readers and technicians. If you're interested in reading or technically supporting a recording team, please contact us on 0141 772 3976 or email information at qandreview.com. Details of all of our volunteering opportunities are available on our website at qandreview.com. Thank you. Now, back to the main programme. The Sunday National, Sunday the 27th of January 2019. News. Police issue travel warning ahead of Arctic blast. Winds up to 55 miles per hour with snow and ice to last until tomorrow. This article is by Laura Webster. Police Scotland issued a travel warning for northern parts of the country last night ahead of an anticipated Arctic blast. Snow and ice are expected to sweep across northern Scotland over the next couple of days, while other areas have been advised of very strong northerly winds. The spell is expected to last until Monday during peak travel time. Inspector David Hind said Police Scotland is advising all drivers to exercise extra caution throughout the Highland and Islands, Morrisshire, Aberdeenshire and northern areas of Tayside as conditions may be hazardous due to snow and ice. There is also the potential for high winds around coastal areas and exposed routes, particularly in the northeast of the country. If you are travelling, you should ensure you and your vehicle are adequately prepared for the conditions, making sure you have sufficient fuel and supplies such as warm clothing, food and water in the event you are delayed for several hours. Charge your mobile phone and plan your route as well as alternative routes. Yesterday, forecasters predicted up to 10 to 15 centimetres, 4 to 6 inches of snow could accumulate on the highest ground across the far north of Scotland as heavy rain turns to snow. And much of northern Scotland is expected to see snow and ice starting yesterday evening and likely to last until midday today with possible blizzards on areas of high ground. A further warning was put in place for the northeast, which may see some icy stretches between 1am and 11am today. The Met Office initially issued a yellow weather warning, indicating there would be snow and ice with blizzards possible on high ground on Friday, and repeated those cautions yesterday. It confirmed Scotland isn't alone in receiving the disruptive weather front. Large swathes of the UK are preparing for the blast which will bring strong winds, snow and ice in what is a chilly end to January. 
The UK's National Weather Service has issued five weather warnings for the weekend and suggested there's a chance of power cuts and travel disruption across the UK. The east coast of England, southern Scotland and the west coast of England, Northern Ireland and Wales are all expected to be battered by the strong winds. Gusts of 50 to 55 miles per hour were expected to develop over Saturday night in Northern Ireland to then travel across Wales and Western England before calming down today. On the east coast, large waves and gusts above the warned figure of 50 to 50 miles per hour are predicted all day today. Higher up, ground and coastal areas around the country are forecast to experience the strongest winds. Forecaster Luke Mile said the weekend would be one of two halves, with Sunday feeling noticeably colder than Saturday. He said we will see quite a blast of strong northerly winds coming down from the Arctic. It's going to be very windy, but it's also going to turn much colder. He added that northerly wind is just going to cut straight through, so its real temperature on the thermometer will probably say 4 to 7 degrees Celsius, but when you add on the wind, it's going to feel sub-zero. This article is by Laura Webster. The National News, recorded on the 29th of January 2019. Rare whiskies worth £10,000 stolen from JL Gill Whiskey Shop from the National News Desk. Rare whiskies worth at least £10,000 were stolen when a specialist family run shop was targeted for the second time this month. More than 20 bottles, including a Macallan 30 year old, were taken at the raid at JL Gill Whiskey Shop in Creef, Perth, and Kinross. Two bottles of Macallan 30 year old were taken in an earlier break in. Police are appealing for information about the latest theft, which happened between 2.45am and 3.30am on Friday. A spokesman said some of these whiskies are exceedingly rare and consequently very valuable. Lower value items were left behind, so it appears those responsible knew what they were looking for. Stuart Cuthbert, whose son Andrew runs the business, said Andrew has spent a lot of time building up a business which is now internationally recognised and just when you are beginning to have the world at your feet, People come and knock it away. It really is soul-destroying. Cuthbert added, All of the methods of operation of the break-in indicate that they came prepared. They had tools to cut through security bars on the window. They cut through the bars about halfway up and wrenched them out of the stonework. Having that sort of equipment in the boot of your car is not really the hallmark of an amateur. Other whiskies stolen include a Macallan 18-year-old, a Glen Farkless 25-year-old, quarter cask, a long row 18-year-old, an open 21-year-old and a Glen Going 21-year-old. It is estimated the whiskey is taken would be worth at least £10,000 were they being sold in the shop but could fetch significantly more on the open market although the Macallan 30-year-old can be found for £5,000 to £10,000 online. It was being sold at the recommended figure of around £2,500 in the shop. Anyone with information is asked to contact police on 101 quoting reference number CR slash 2146 slash 19 or call Stream Stoppers on 0800 555 From the National News Desk. The National News recorded on the 30th of January 2019. Councillors asked to back £2 per night capital tourist tax by Jane Cassidy. Councillors in Edinburgh will be asked to approve a proposed £2 per room pay our night tax on tourists next week as they consider implementing what would be a UK first. Plans for the Transient Visitor Levy, TVL, 
also includes an exemption for campsites, a cap of seven consecutive nights, and investing an estimated £14.6 million every year. The flat charge is regarded as a better approach than a percentage, and the seven-night cap is to protect seasonal and festive workers in the city for extended periods of time. If approved at a full council meeting next Thursday, the recommendations will then be put to ministers and MSPs to have the final say. Council leader Adam McVeigh said it was an obvious choice for Edinburgh. He said, having listened carefully to all the feedback we've received from industry partners and citizens and businesses, We've refined our proposals and are in a really strong position to take forward a TVL. The capital's population is increasing rapidly and visitor numbers continue to grow. Our economic strength has brought us a great deal of success as a city, but the reality is, without an additional income stream, we all struggle to manage and support the success in future. Tourism and hospitality are key drivers of our economy, and this levy provides us with a way to sustainably support its continued success and reduce impacts on residents all year round. Plus, all the research points to visitors being happy to pay a modest sum. A TVL is an obvious solution for the council, for our people and for the future of our city. European cities such as Paris and Barcelona have tourist levies. Will Bath and Oxford councils have also called for powers to charge visitors. A public consultation indicated that just over half, 51% of accommodation providers and 91% of residents supported the introduction of a TVL. The council said that it is estimated that the proposals could raise between £11.6 million and £14.6 million per year. By Jane Cassidy. This is an article from a national. 1st of February 2019. Hunt on for Ram Raiders who smashed shop. The cash machine at the first new shop in George Ward was a target for robbers on a so-called Ram Raid who had earlier stolen for a JCB digger from a building site on a nearby Calder Road. Witnesses reported seeing the digger travelling together with a white Ford flatback truck and a black Mercedes 4x4, shortly before the shop front was destroyed by the digger. The incident caught on CCTV from inside the shop. It is not known how much was taken, if anything. Majority Road, which is a busy commuter route on the west side of the capital, was blocked for some time as police officers investigated the crime. Police officers in Edinburgh are not linking the Ram Raid to another almost stimulus incident in which money and cigarettes were stolen from shop premises in Oxangs at around 4.20am. A police statement said police in Edinburgh are investigating following a break-in and theft from business premises in Oxangs. The incident happened at around 4.20am on Thursday, January 31st at a convenience store in Oxlands Broad Rear Entry was forced to the premises and a full summer cash and quantity of cigarettes were stolen. Police in Edinburgh have appealed for assistance in both cases. Regarding a Ram Raid, Inspector Scott Richardson of Wester Hales Police Station said the JCB digger was stolen from Kentmore Building Site in Calder Ward and was seen in the area of convoy with a black Mercedes 4x4 and a right flawed flatbed truck. I'm keen to hear from anyone who may have seen any of these vehicles and may be able to assist in investigation. Police say anyone with information can talk at Grodgy Instant should call the police on 101 quote instant number 326 of January 31st and call Crime Stoppers anonymously on 0800 555 News. Recorded on the 29th of January 2019. Scottish study brings hope stem cells can restore sight. By Jane Cassidy. New research by Edinburgh University has brought hope that millions of people who have lost their sight could ultimately have their vision restored using stem cells taken from the eyes of organ donors. 
eight patients of a common condition that destroys vision have had the affected area repaired thanks to the pioneering tissue transplant. Now it is thought the revolutionary treatment may lead to a cure for blindness caused by damage to the cornea, the transparent front part of the eye. It often becomes clouded in older people through injury or infection. In the developing world, children and younger people are also increasingly prone. Study leader Belgene Dillon, professor of clinical ophthalmology at the University of Edinburgh's Centre for Clinical Brain Sciences, said, The findings from this small study are very promising and show the potential for safe stem cell eye surgery as well as improvements in eye repair. Describing the breakthrough as a world first, Dylan and his colleagues said it shows how eye damage can be fixed with stem cells from organ donors. The study has also produced new information on the causes of sight disorders. The study, published in the journal Stem Cells Transitional Medicine, focused on limbal stem cells, which patients with corneal blindness typically lack. These lie in the top layer of the cornea, the epithelium, and act as a barrier against dust and germs. Without this tissue, the cornea becomes irregular, destroying vision and leaving the eye prone to infection. It can result from damage caused by chemicals or heat, or a disease called aniridia. It leads to scarring and severe vision loss in both eyes, as well as chronic pain and redness. The team grew stem cells from cornea samples from donors. They split 16 patients into two groups and half received transplanted tissue. They were also given standard eye drops and immune system suppressing drugs to reduce the risk of rejection. Those given the stem cells showed significant improvement in the ocular surface of their eyes, the outermost layer, over 18 months. This was not seen in the patients who only got the eye drops. It is the first time stem cells have been used in this way in a clinical trial. Dylan hopes the study's results could lead to new ways to tackle other forms of blindness. In the UK alone, there are almost 2 million people living with sight loss, with around 360,000 registered as blind or partially sighted. He said, Our next step are to better understand how stem cells could promote tissue repair for diseases that are extremely hard to treat, and if and how they could help to restore vision. By Jane Cassidy The National Opinion, recorded on the 29th of January 2019, India's essential part of answer to Scotland's economic inertia, by columnist Michael Fry. Meanwhile, the world keeps turning and the sun also rises. In other words, despite the hoo-ha around Brexit due to carry on all this week, we still need to keep working at more humdrum tasks to equip Scotland for the coming Independence Day. This column agrees with Nicola Sturgeon on that. It also agrees things are looking up, a little after a long period of rather dismal economic indicators. They are still not good enough to make independence easy-peasy or to ensure entry into a land of milk and honey on the other side of the big day. Even so, the prospects have stopped getting a bit worse all the time and have turned a bit better. One of the best pointers to the actual economic position is to be found in the figures for the Scottish labour market issued last week by the Office for National Statistics. It is a Creature of the UK government, of course, but one which is usually dispassionate and objective, at least judged by the wretched standards similar bodies have set in recent times. These figures showed how the total of unemployed Scots towards the end of last year passed 100,000 going down. I would not myself expect this figure to remain below 100,000 for all that long, what with the main effects of Brexit still to kick in, but employment is a lagging indicator, the result of trends already well underway. To that extent, they may soften a little with a coming crunch. 
In presenting the results, the ONS highlighted a long-term trend. It was the first time unemployment has fallen below 100,000 since the present statistical series started in 1992, more than a quarter century ago. In fact, an old hand like me can go one better than that because I remember when it rose above 100,000, measured slightly differently for the first time since the Second World War. This was in 1977 and marked the end of the long era of full employment pursued by governments of every hue after 1945. As economics correspondent of the Scotsman at the time, and I got a leak of the impending announcement, much to the embarrassment of the Scottish office. It is sobering to reflect how over that whole period, not just a quarter century, but more than four decades in a row, we have never in Scotland had fewer than 100,000 jobless and sometimes many more. Recall too how the period started while Labour was in office with Jim Callaghan as Prime Minister and Dennis Healy as Chancellor pursuing policies that anticipated Margaret Thatcher's and proved to be in some respects even fiercer. This was the last time we had real terms cuts in the actual total of public spending, for example, rather than mere restraint of a previously planned rate of expansion. This latest milestone marks the end of an era in other words, but UK public policies may have done less to bring it about than international forces, the stupendous changes that have overtaken every economy in the world during an epoch of accelerating change. Let's think about how they have been playing out in Scotland. The traditional industries that dominated the nation at the beginning of this epoch, coal, steel and shipbuilding, have by now almost entirely vanished. At an intermediate stage, we tried to replace them through the official encouragement of advanced technology, much of it in the form of subsidised inward investment. It often disappointed. New Scottish plants turned out to be for assembly and delivery, not for research and development. Those two latter activities went to San Diego or Bangalore rather than to Greenock or Livingston, which could not provide a suitable workforce or sufficient backup in any case. This kind of top-down investment strategy seemed to peter out with the great financial crisis of 2007-8. Ever since then, the Scottish economy has been growing more slowly than in the past, struggling to expand by much above 1% a year, compared to the 3% that might once have been expected during periods of recovery. Consistent with this is the snail's pace of improvements in productivity, in other words, of how much output we get from our inputs. Workers in some European countries produce as much in four days as Scots do in five. In the public sector, nearly a quarter of the economy as a whole. The Scottish government runs an employment policy that tenders a better performance by forbidding compulsory redundancies in a tight labour market. They would actually be an aid to faster growth because they would encourage workers to move more quickly from a less productive job to a more productive one. Without higher productivity, we will not be able to bring about a sustained improvement in living standards. One proof of this is easy to see. Since 2017, there have been more Scots at work than ever before. Over 75% of those aged 16 to 64, with only 3.6% of them idle. People who just can't get a job are a thing of the past in the old days. We would have defined this as an economy of full employment, excluding only those who are swapping their workplace or have some personal reason for withdrawing temporarily from the labour market. Despite the full employment ever since, the great financial crisis, there has been next to no improvement in living standards. It is true that just at the moment we can see pay rising faster than the inflation rate of 3% or so. Commentators on the ONS figures have put this down to the prospect of a shortage of labour, with wages being bid up by companies unable to get the workers they need. Again, Brexit will be a burden. 
Tourism and agriculture depend to a large extent on foreign labour. In regions like the Highlands, there is no surplus of local workers to be mobilised and the prospect is for immigration to be slashed. So much for the UK. Government's assurances that in its European negotiations it will take account of vital Scottish interests. There will be little help for lowering standards from that direction. And altogether, despite some improvements, Scotland remains bogged down in the newer economic problems that have replaced the old ones. It does not help that we live under a government that too often rests content with outdated thinking. Still stuck in the mud of leftist prejudices from the 1970s, when a big state was presented as the answer to everything. As I said at the start, this may be changing a bit, but not by nearly enough. Ministers and officials, displacement activity in quangos, otherwise composed of the great and good, ignores the fact that the worst difficulties are faced by the huge sector of small and medium enterprises, with difficulties that are hard to understand or address. At the same time, the Scottish Government lacks the power to tackle these difficulties and so has little incentive to think them through. Independence is then an essential part of the answer to the deep-seated problems of Scotland's economy. Even while happy to acknowledge how things have recently looked up a bit, I feel we are still quite a long way off meeting the challenges. Meanwhile, we should spend less time worrying about how to share out our national resources and more time thinking how we can increase them in global terms. Our decree of inequality is nothing to be greatly ashamed of. In light of our own history as a homeland of the Industrial Revolution and of the contributions Scots have made to economic progress, our stagnation certainly is something to be ashamed of. By columnist Michael Fry. This is an article from a National, 28th of January 2019. Plans to bring back office and homes to Edinburgh's Princess Street. Now a plan to bring back residential dwellings and offices to what is mainly a street of retail outlets has been put forward by the business group Essential Edinburgh. According to reports, the group is pointing to the competition from the one billion development on the site of the St James Centre due to open in October 2020 as a possible threat to Princess Street viability. Speaking ahead of hosting Edinburgh's annual tourism summit on Thursday, Essential Edinburgh Chief Executive Roddy Smith said one of the biggest issues for the city is how we develop Princess Street. Everywhere around Prince Street is getting investment and redevelopment at the moment. You only have to look at what has happened on St Andrew's Square, the new St James development, the proposals of Waverley Mall and the plans for the Johnny Walker development. Space is at a premium in the city. We have to accept that the city needs to evolve to continue to be a world-class tourism destination. Princess Street will now have to evolve and respond to the changing needs of the city around going tourism demand for new top-end office space and how the retail sector is changing and developing. In told the evening news, I don't see why we can't turn the upper floors and Princess Street into residential spaces. There needs to be a serious strategic look at Princess Street and an assessment of the current plan and conditions. Princess Street is an attractive proposition because of the location and pre-immense and its bus and tram connections. It is a main shopping street and I think it always will be, but I think there's a real opportunity for it to evolve. The National Opinion, recorded on the 29th of January 2019, India's essential part of answer to Scotland's economic inertia, by columnist Michael Fry. Meanwhile, the world keeps turning and the sun also rises. In other words, despite the hoo-ha around Brexit due to carry on all this week, we still need to keep working at more humdrum tasks 
to equip Scotland for the coming Independence Day. This column agrees with Nicola Sturgeon on that. It also agrees things are looking up a little after a long period of rather dismal economic indicators. They are still not good enough to make independence easy-peasy or to ensure entry into a land of milk and honey on the other side of the big day. Even so, the prospects have stopped getting a bit worse all the time and have turned a bit better. One of the best pointers to the actual economic position is to be found in the figures for the Scottish labour market issued last week by the Office for National Statistics. It is a creature of the UK government, of course, but one which is usually dispassionate and objective, at least judged by the wretched standards similar bodies have set in recent times. These figures showed how the total of unemployed Scots towards the end of last year passed 100,000, going down. I would not myself expect this figure to remain below 100,000 for all that long, what with the main effects of Brexit still to kick in. But employment is a lagging indicator, the result of trends already well underway. To that extent, they may soften a little with a coming crunch. In presenting the results, the ONS highlighted a long-term trend. It was the first time unemployment has fallen below 100,000 since the present statistical series started in 1992, more than a quarter century ago. In fact, an old hand like me can go one better than that because I remember when it rose above 100,000, measured slightly differently for the first time since the Second World War. This was in 1977 and marked the end of the long era of full employment pursued by governments of every hue after 1945. I was economics correspondent of the Scotsman at the time, and I got a leak of the impending announcement, much to the embarrassment of the Scottish office. It is sobering to reflect how over that whole period, not just a quarter century, but more than four decades in a row, we have never in Scotland had fewer than 100,000 jobless and sometimes many more. Recall, too, how the period started while Labour was in office, with Jim Callaghan as Prime Minister and Dennis Healy as Chancellor, pursuing policies that anticipated Margaret Thatcher's, and proved to be in some respects even fiercer. This was the last time we had real terms cuts in the actual total of public spending, for example, rather than mere restraint of a previously planned rate of expansion. This latest milestone marks the end of an era, in other words, but UK public policies may have done less to bring it about than international forces, the stupendous changes that have overtaken every economy in the world during an epoch of accelerating change. Let's think about how they have been playing out in Scotland. The traditional industries that dominated the nation at the beginning of this epoch, coal, steel and shipbuilding, have by now almost entirely vanished. At an intermediate stage, we tried to replace them through the official encouragement of advanced technology, much of it in the form of subsidised inward investment. It often disappointed. New Scottish plants turned out to be for assembly and delivery, not for research and development. Those two latter activities went to San Diego or Bangalore, rather than to Greenock or Livingston, which could not provide a suitable workforce or sufficient backup in any case. This kind of top-down investment strategy seemed to peter out what the great financial crisis of 2007-8. Ever since then, the Scottish economy has been growing more slowly than in the past, struggling to expand by much above 1% a year, compared to the 3% that might once have been expected during periods of recovery. Consistent with this is the snail's pace of improvements in productivity, in other words, of how much output we get from our inputs. Workers in some European countries produce as much in four days as Scots do in five. In the public sector, nearly a quarter of the economy as a whole, the Scottish government runs an employment policy that tenders a 
better performance by forbidding compulsory redundancies in a tight labour market. They would actually be in aid to faster growth because they would encourage workers to move more quickly from a less productive job to a more productive one. Without higher productivity, we will not be able to bring about a sustained improvement in living standards. One proof of this is easy to see. Since 2017, there have been more Scots at work than ever before. Over 75% of those aged 16 to 64, with only 3.6% of them idle. People who just can't get a job are a thing of the past in the old days. We would have defined this as an economy of full employment, excluding only those who are swapping their workplace or have some personal reason for withdrawing temporarily from the labour market. Despite the full employment ever since the great financial crisis, there has been next to no improvement in living standards. It is true that just at the moment we can see pay rising faster than the inflation rate of 3% or so. Commentators on the ONS figures have put this down to the prospect of a shortage of labour, with wages being bid up by companies unable to get the workers they need. Again, Brexit will be a burden. Tourism and agriculture depend to a large extent on foreign labour. In regions like the Highlands, there is no surplus of local workers to be mobilised, and the prospect is for immigration to be slashed. So much for the UK. Government's assurances that in its European negotiations it would take account of vital Scottish interests. There will be little help for living standards from that direction. And altogether, despite some improvements, Scotland remains bogged down in the newer economic problems that have replaced the old ones. It does not help that we live under a government that too often rests content with outdated thinking. Still stuck in the mud of leftist prejudices from the 1970s, when a big state was presented as the answer to everything. As I said at the start, this may be changing a bit, but not by nearly enough. Ministers and officials, displacement activity, and quangos, otherwise composed of the great and good, ignores the fact that the worst difficulties are faced by the huge sector of small and medium enterprises, with difficulties that are hard to understand or address. At the same time, Scottish Government lacks the power to tackle these difficulties and so has little incentive to think them through. Independence is then an essential part of the answer to the deep-seated problems of Scotland's economy. Even while happy to acknowledge how things have recently looked up a bit, I feel we are still quite a long way off meeting the challenges. Meanwhile, we should spend less time worrying about how to share out our national resources and more time thinking how we can increase them in global terms. Our decree of inequality is nothing to be greatly ashamed of. In the light of our own history as a homeland of the Industrial Revolution and of the contributions Scots have made to economic progress, our stagnation certainly is something to be ashamed of. By columnist Michael Fry. The National Politics Recorded on the 29th of January 2019 Failure to pass Scottish budget could create retail uncertainty by Emerald Tool. Failure to pass the Scottish budget would create a thick layer of uncertainty for businesses at an already challenging time, retail chiefs have warned. With Finance Secretary Derek Mackay apparently unable to find opposition support for his draft tax and spending plans, the Scottish Retail Consortium, SRC, urged politicians to take a collegiate approach to ensure the proposals can pass through Holyrood on Thursday. That marks the first opportunity for the Scottish Parliament to vote on the 2019-20 budget. While the six Scottish Green MSPs have backed the minority SNP administration's budget for the past two years, co-convener Patrick Harvey claimed the hugely damaging proposals for the coming year would lead to massive cuts in local services. 
The budget includes an additional £730 million investment in health services north of the border and £180 million aimed at boosting attainment in schools, with £5 billion of capital investment including £1.7 billion spending on transport infrastructure and a £50 million town centre fund to support struggling high streets. Meanwhile, tax changes outlined in the plans will increase differences between Scotland and the rest of the UK. From April, taxpayers south of the border will only pay income tax at the 40p rate if they earn more than £50,000 a year, while in Scotland it is proposed people will pay the higher rate of 41p on earnings above £43,430. SRC Director David Lonsdale said, Will the plans that have been put forward are far from perfect? There was much in the draft budget that retailers supported, including funding for town centres and income tax proposals aimed at protecting ordinary workers from higher bills. With the UK's departure from the EU just two months away, he stressed that damage uncertainty could have on firms. Lonsdale said, In the current volatile economic and political climate, businesses need as much certainty as possible. That's why it's crucial MSPs take a college approach to ensure a budget which supports economic growth is passed without delay. Robust debate and scrutiny over the coming days is both right and necessary. However, any failure to pass a budget in good time would add a thick layer of uncertainty at an already challenging time for many businesses. Bruce Crawford, convener of Holyrood's Finance Committee, took to Twitter to urge political rivals to support the budget. He said opposition parties must get behind the SNP government Scottish budget. Opposing it would mean voting down additional spending on our NHS, education, welfare and local services, causing serious disruption and risking unwanted Scottish Parliament election. However, Scottish Liberal Democrat leader Willie Rennie insisted there was no majority for the budget in its current form. He stated, Scottish Liberal Democrats are not asking for the world. We want to deliver a progressive budget that delivers on education, mental health and local government funding. However, we also have been clear that independence would mean less money for public services. That's why it needs to be taken off the table for the remainder of this Parliament. By Emma The National News, recorded on the 29th of January 2019. Street Valium linked to Scott's drug overdose death increase from the National News Desk. Street drugs being sold as Valium tablets have been linked to an unprecedented number of fatal overdoses in Glasgow. Health chiefs feared that Street Valium, also known as Street Blues, may be connected to a sharp rise in the number of drug deaths in the city. They say it is impossible for users to know what drug they are actually taking. There was a 43% rise in the number of people who died of drug overdoses in January to October last year compared with the same period in 2017. An increasing number of people were also treated for non-fatal overdoses at hospitals and by crisis services across the city, they said. Reported use of naloxone, a drug that can reverse the effects of an opiate overdose, has also increased. Sakit Priyadarshi, Associate Medical Director at NHS Greater Glasgow and Clyde Addiction Services, said he was very concerned. He said, when people buy street blues, they do not know what is in the pills. The quality and dosage can be very variable. People may think they are taking diazepam, but it may be other, much more potent, benzodiazepines. Although no final toxicology is not yet available on the recent deaths in Glasgow, all the evidence suggests that the use of street blues is associated with the worrying trend of increasing drug-related deaths. Suzanne Miller, chair of Glasgow's Alcohol and Drug Partnership, said people are dicing with death by taking this drug, particularly if it is mixed with alcohol and other drugs. 
Warnings have been issued to people by homelessness and addiction services, but sadly, dealers are targeting the most vulnerable from the National News Desk. Thank you for listening to this week's edition of The National. This weekly talking newspaper digest was a Q&Review recording service production. The readers were volunteers at Q&Review and the producer was Jordan Duncan. Q&Review Recording Service Limited is a registered Scottish charity. Number SC018016. Our registered office is at 18 Crowhill Road, Bishop Briggs, Glasgow, G641QY. Remember, you can always get in contact with us by email at information at qandreview.com or by leaving us a message on our answering service at 0141 772 3976.